After listening to our last podcast on the historical uniqueness of the Christian Bible, you may be thinking, pretty big claims you made about it, but can you prove that any of them are really true? Does secular history really anchor the stories in the Bible in real history? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prent, and welcome to Bible 805. I'm going to answer those questions today with our lesson number four on the Old Testament overview and historical anchors. Now, previously, we looked at Hinduism, Buddhism, the Mormon Church, and Islam. And from our study, we learned that despite the push today for religious tolerance, we must respectfully point out that not all religions and their scriptures are the same. They can't all be true because they contradict each other. In addition, the scriptures of these other groups do not have historical anchors anywhere near the way that the Christian Bible, the Christian scriptures do. Even though some of the more recent religions, and by this I mean Islam and Mormonism, can be historically verified in that we know that their founders actually lived, we know Muhammad lived, we know Joseph Smith were historical characters, many of the other events in their scriptures are based either all or in part on fanciful stories or outright falsehood. When you compare them with what was actually written about and what was going on in secular history. Now the Christian Bible is completely different and we're going to talk about why it is and give you some specific examples in this series of what we're going to be doing. We're going to do this by looking at identifiable historical things that happened at the same time that the biblical record was written. I will show you, well actually I'm going to show it to you by describing it in um, verbally. Um, you won't actually see pictures. I'm hoping next year to actually do more of a video series, but I just didn't have time to do both at right now. But I'm going to describe for you archaeological sites. I'm going to quote for you other historians, other writers, all of these different things to help you really understand and see why the Christian Bible is unique. We're going to start with the Old Testament, and what I'm going to do is I will give you an overview of it, and then we will get into some of the archaeological things that verify the history. Now, first of all, I need to give you an overview of the whole Old Testament. Now, I hope to do this fairly quickly, but it's it's a big book. It starts out, of course, with the creation of the world and the destruction caused during the flood. Now, this part of the Old Testament we do not have exact dating or details, but we do believe as Christians that God was in control of these events. And there's a lot of apologists that have written things on that. What I want to do is I want to start out more with the areas that we do have some concrete examples about. The first thing is around 2000 BC, we start out with the story of the Jewish people and the call of Abraham. And after I go through the whole thing, I, I'm going to go back and and then show you how we have actually verified where he was from, where he lived, etc. Around 2000 BC, Abraham was called to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go into what would later become the nation of Israel. 
Under his grandson Jacob, the Israelites then moved to Egypt. There they grow into a nation. They leave Egypt in the Exodus around 1400 BC. This is probably one of the few biblical events almost everybody knows about because they've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, which was really fairly accurate. So they leave around 1400 BC. Now, a very critical thing takes place after the Exodus. There, God meets his people at Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are what most of us are familiar with, but this is only part of what is known as God's covenant with his people. And basically, this is this is just a very, very brief summary, but you've got to understand this for the rest of the Old Testament to make sense. A covenant is where two parties agree that one will do one thing and then the other will do another thing. And on the basis of those actions, the covenant is solid. Now, on this one, God said that he would love, he would protect, and he would preserve his people But the requirement for his people is that they were to obey and worship him only. No other gods before me. We remember that statement from the Ten Commandments. But they were to serve God. Part of the covenant also, just as important as the promises, was what would happen if people did not serve God. And God says that he will punish them. And there are, in Deuteronomy, there is a series of punishments that God outlines that will take place and the ultimate punishment would be that they would be removed from the land. Well, the story continues, and for around 400 years after they conquer the land, they're, they're in Israel, they're ruled by what are called judges, and again, this is these are some of the Bible stories we're familiar with. We have Gideon who put out the fleece, and we have Samson who was a strong man, and there were lots of other judges that we're not as familiar with, but the whole time of the judges was not a particularly good time in Israel. It The Bible tells us that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And typically this followed a pattern of the people would promise that they would serve God and then they wouldn't. They would serve the gods of the Canaanite nations and some of them were absolutely horrible. They practiced child sacrifice and they were very sexually immoral and in many ways did not at all live in ways that were pleasing to God. So God would allow them to be judged. Typically another country and other people would come in, a surrounding one, the Philistines were were one that did this quite often and would tromp on them and impose tribute and made life very, very difficult for them. The people would cry out to God. He would take mercy on them. A judge would arise. And at this time, keep in mind the idea of a judge was also a warrior leader. Samson didn't just judge the people like we think of you know, a judge making decisions. He led them um, in battle. He led their armies. And they would get victory. They would have a time of peace. Then they would go back to their old ways. They would be oppressed. A judge would come up. And this, again, went on and on for around 400 years. Near the end of that time, the last judge of Israel was the prophet Samuel. And when he was a judge, the people came to him and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And so Samuel prayed and God said, give them what they want, but tell them what they're in for. So Samuel did that. He anoints Saul as king. Saul was then rejected 
because of his disobedience, David, the greatest king of Israel, comes to the throne. He was a marvelous king. He loved God. He served God with all his heart. He sinned, but he repented. And his son Solomon continued early on in wonderful ways, built the temple. But then, sadly, Solomon married, it says, many foreign women, hundreds of them, in fact, and they turned his heart away from God. His son Rehoboam was a very proud man, and under his rule, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom that broke away from the Davidic throne, this was called Israel. And then the southern kingdom, only two tribes were left, was Judah and Benjamin, and it was called Judah. Now, for the rest of Israel's history, they have a very, uh, shall we say, contentious relationship with each other, even though they're all God's people, but their histories go in very different ways. Israel has a series of kings that not one of them was good. Some of them were a little less bad than others, but they continuously do evil in God's sight. Judah, the southern kingdom, there were some good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings. Through both of them, though, this is the time, and this is really important to understand, throughout this history, which we get in the first part of our Bible in First and Second Kings and Chronicles. Well, actually, it starts in Samuel, then First and Second Kings and Chronicles. We get all the history, but here's what's important. At the same time, the prophets that we don't get till the end of the Old Testament, they're preaching during this time. And also the poetry that's in the middle is being written during this time. And so if you don't know what prophets are speaking to what king and what situation, it can become very, very confusing. And that's where most people are when they read their Bibles. They they read all this history and that's kind of neat and easy to understand. Then they read the Psalms and they're all encouraged and that's wonderful. And then they get to the prophets and they're going, what's with these guys? Why are they so angry all the time. What are they talking about? Well, you have to put the prophets in their proper historical place for them to make sense. That's why finishing this overview, I'm going to be going through the Bible chronologically next year. Please, please, please be part of that. Please listen to the podcast on it because I'm going to put the prophets in their proper place the poetry in its proper place and you'll see how it all fits together. You see I was thinking about it um, last night and I thought I realized that when you read the prophets out of context it's just as if someone say several hundred years from now or, or whatever would read some current editorials where someone would be ranting and raving about a current political situation or something that was going on. If you didn't know the context, it wouldn't make any sense at all. And it's kind of like that when you read the prophets and they're completely out of order. So the prophets were calling the people back to repentance. Unfortunately, they didn't listen. The northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered by Assyria and it, after several minor deportations, in 722, They are taken out of their land, they're removed from their land, and they are never, the tribes, they're sometimes called the ten lost tribes, they weren't, you know, totally lost, I mean, we know where a lot of them went, but um, 
they never came back to their land. Now one little tidbit, historical tidbit here, that's kind of interesting. The way Assyria did it is they would remove people from their native lands and then they would mix them up in all other nations and then they would take conquered people from other nations and put them back into the previously conquered one. That's what they did in Israel and it talks very clearly in the Old Testament about how the Assyrians settled in Samaria a group of people from all sorts of different nations who brought their different gods with them. Now you fast forward to New Testament times, that's why the pure Jewish people and the Jewish race stayed pure down in Judah. They hated the Samaritans because they were a mixed race and they they had served all sorts of different gods in the past. And that came about during the Assyrian deportation. But back to our story of what happened in the Old Testament. Judah lasted as an independent nation for 130 more years after Assyria conquered Israel. But it then fell to Babylon in 586 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. But unlike the Assyrian deportation that they were gone and just gone, the Jewish people were allowed to return and rebuild the temple after 70 years. And then the final books of the Old Testament were written down. We have the the last of the prophets, the last of the history in Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. They were written down and Jewish history tells us that they were collected by what are called the men of the great synagogue or the great assembly. And that's the Bible that we have today. That's the story, but all other religions have a story. They have uh, taken and and fanciful ideas and all the, the things, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita and um, in the in the Book of Mormon, where they talk of Zaramahala and the different peoples. Um, why is this story different than any other? Why do we say that we have historical anchors? Well, I'm, I'm just going to give you a few of them, but I think you'll find this really exciting when we look at archaeology. First of all, let's start back with Abraham. Was Ur the Chaldees a real place? Yes, it certainly was. And a gentleman named Leonard Woolsey, he was an English archaeologist, and he actually excavated Ur from 1920 to 1934. He spent 12 years excavating it. Now, this is, uh, you can go to the ruins today and they're fascinating. One of the images that I pulled off of the web, it's it's really interesting because ancient Ur, they've been able to excavate actually one particular area of the city where they've dated it back to around 2100 BC and it would literally be the time that Abraham and his father Terah were living there. And so archaeologists today have found the actual streets and this actual city that they lived in. Now, one of the things that's very interesting in the excavation of Ur, not only just the proof that it actually existed, it was a real place, but the level of sophistication there. It was an extremely advanced society. They have gorgeous artifacts, uh, very well-built 
rooms and, and cities, and then their artifacts, beautiful gold jewelry, harps and daggers and murals. Some of the things that are some of my favorites, if you look at the jewelry of the women of Ur, it looks exactly like ours today. They wore gold hoop earrings, they had drop earrings, they had hairpins, it, they had necklaces, very, very similar styles to what people wear today. Now, just a little parenthesis here. Again, not only does this show that one of the earliest stories in the Bible took place in a real place, very identifiable, exactly where the Bible says it is, all that sort of thing. But one of the things, too, that we see from this is the area that God called Abraham out of was no little backwater. It must have been far more significant for him to leave than we sometimes think about. The way I've sometimes described it to my Sunday school classes, I say, it's as if he called you to leave L.A. with all the excitement and everything that's going on in the wealth of the city and just go out and settle in Death Valley. That was kind of similar to what God called Abraham to do. And I don't want to dwell on that, but um, check it out online, just some of the artifacts of the city of Ur. Again, just one of those time anchors. Then one of the next ones that we go to that is very interesting, of course, is the time of the Exodus. And we know, of course, that Egypt was a real place. It isn't just somewhere where fanciful events happened. And again, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that these things happen in a real place. In many other scriptures, the places are not real. They're fanciful. They can't be verified. But of course, Egypt is. And we have some hieroglyphics, one that is particularly interesting. It shows a group of slaves building walls with clay bricks. And they're obviously foreigners. They're very light-skinned. And Egyptian people are darker-skinned. And we don't know for sure because it doesn't have a little caption that says, these were the Hebrew slaves. But it's very good evidence that that kind of thing did happen. We do have from archaeological digs, though, and there's a whole uh, series of them. You can go online and look at them at, um, at the British Museum, where they have the clay bricks that were made with straw, just like what were described, what was described in the Bible. They have a, from that time period, they have a staff of one of the magicians that is an iron staff that has a cobra's head, similar to what was described in the Bible. They have, of course, the reed baskets that um, they used for all kind of things. And, and we talk about Moses being put in a little basket. So in many areas, many ways, we have historical anchors for the things that happened during the Exodus. Then when we get to the Assyrian world, oh, this is really interesting there. Um, the Assyrian Empire lasted for thousands of years, but it was extremely powerful from about 900 to 626 BC. Now, this is in the area of modern-day Iraq. Uh, Mosul, that you've heard about on the news a lot, the ancient city of Nineveh was probably somewhere near there. Well, actually it was. We we found, um, the archaeologists have found it. This is the city that um, Jonah was called to go to and preach. 
When you understand what the Assyrian world was like, what Nineveh was like, you will then understand why he didn't want to go. It was an extraordinarily cruel empire. They have all of these uh, huge slab, some of them are known as the lakish reliefs, and what these are, these are gigantic slabs of stone that are carved out with the history of the Assyrian people. One set of them, known as the lakish reliefs, are described in this way by the gentleman that discovered them. He talks about how the pictures shown on them, it shows the taking of the city and how it was besieged by Sennacherib and how everything in it actually pictures what happens in the Bible. And he he summarizes it by saying, this highly interesting series of bas-reliefs contained, moreover, an undoubted representation of a king, a city, and a people whose names we are acquainted with and of an event described in Holy Writ. And those aren't the only ones that the Assyrians left behind. They just loved writing about themselves. And there is another piece that's quite well known. It's called Sennacherib's Stele. And what this is, this is a hexagonal piece of stone. And there was someone similar to it. Sennacherib loved writing about himself. And he would talk about how he did this and he did that. And he conquered all these people. Well, the Stele, what's really interesting about this is he talks about all of the different cities that he conquered. And the one that he did not conquer, he talks about how he laid siege to Jerusalem, but he didn't capture it. And in the Bible, this is the wonderful story where they were laying siege to it, and Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah says, God is going to protect the city, and he does. And we'll talk about this more again when we're, we're going through the chronological history of it. But what's just fascinating, if you even go onto Wikipedia, there is a huge map of the Assyrian Empire, and this, this um, encompassed at its height everything from Egypt all through the Middle East, all the way up north into what we would, you know, modern Iraq. And this entire area is in different shades of green, which are the Assyrian Empire, except for this little bitty area just surrounding Jerusalem and Judah, which they were never able to conquer. Now, Assyria was incredibly powerful, but behind the beauty and all of the splendor of their nation, it was incredibly cruel. And these different uh, bas-reliefs, these um, these huge carvings, they were like 20, 30 feet high, I can't remember exactly how much, a lot of them lined and they have found, they've excavated this hall of Sennacherib and the reliefs that he had on the wall weren't of pretty pictures, they were all battle scenes. Not only battle scenes, but he was very much into torturing people. There are images of him skimming, skinning people alive and beheading people and impaling people and cutting off hands and feet and what was, yeah, it's not really funny, but I kind of thought it was when I first read about it, is that this was the room that people, it was the anteroom of his throne room, and so this is where you would wait before you saw the king, and needless to say, you were probably very terrified by the time you actually went in to talk to him, but uh, just jumping ahead, God, of course, had the last word. He did, in his mercy, send Jonah 
to preach to the Assyrians. And people repented, but they again slipped back into their own ways, old ways of cruelty. And then finally, the prophet Nahum, and this is this is out of the message translation, he is sent to Nineveh, and he says, God is, seri- God is in serious business. He won't be trifled with. He avenges his foes. He stands up against his enemies, fierce and raging. God doesn't lose his temper. He's powerful, but it's a patient power. Still, no one gets by with anything. And then he speaks directly to Assyria and Nineveh. He says, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And shortly thereafter, Nineveh was conquered by Babylon. Moving along in our very quick history, we now have Israel has gone into captivity. Judah is still existing as a nation. And the prophet Isaiah preaches during this time. And it's very interesting because Isaiah goes almost out of his way to provide historical anchors for his preaching. Because he starts out the book by saying, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, we can go to many sources in secular history and see that, yes, these kings did live. And he dates different things in the book. He talks about the year that King Uzziah died, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, was the was king and he goes through these different things now what's what's really important with Isaiah is he dates these things and we know certain kings lived at this time what's important is he makes some pretty incredible statements during these times let me give you one and then I'll tell you why it's so incredible in Isaiah 44:28 I'm quoting it it says of Cyrus He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And then he goes on to say in the next chapter, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Now here is what is absolutely astounding about this. If Isaiah was written when biblical scholars say that it is, now there's some disputing on that, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute, but if it was written when Isaiah and most biblical scholars say it was written, this prophecy took place approximately 150 years before Cyrus made his decree. This prophecy took place even before Babylon conquered Assyria. And if the dating is to be trusted, and I believe it is, and I'll, I'll give you some more reasons in just a minute, it is absolutely extraordinary. Before we go back to the dating, though, just to confirm that that is what Cyrus did, we have a marvelous archaeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it was a cuneiform, it's a, a cylinder, and they uh, it's, it's, again, little tiny cuneiform writing, but it describes what Cyrus did as king and after, after he conquered Babylon. 
and it talks about how he was allowing, and it wasn't just the Jews, this is something that he did, he allowed the different peoples to return to their lands and build their temples. So we know he did that, we know when he did that. Now the question for some is exactly when was it prophesied, and the way some liberal scholars will get around it, they'll say, well, actually there were two Isaiahs. There was one that prophesied way before the captivity, and then one afterwards, and that's why he said these things would happen. But the textual criticism, the, text, the source criticism that looks at when documents were written simply does not support it. The book of Isaiah in all of the texts that we have is one continuous document and the Dead Sea Scrolls which are not broken into different chapters and stuff, it's just one continuous book, it has it as an entire book. So there really isn't any credible evidence that there were two Isaiahs. Now these are just just a few examples from history that show us many of the archaeological historical anchors to the Bible. So many more can be given and we'll talk about these in our year-long study of the Bible in chronological order. But the point that I want you to remember now is that the Bible talks about real places and down to the most specific details of the Edicts of Kings. This happened in true history and it's verified throughout archaeology, world history books, many things that other scriptures, for example in the Book of Mormon, there is absolutely no confirmation outside of their writings that these things happened. Now, not only does this confirm our faith, but it also demands something of us. To understand how God works in history, we need to read our Bible in that way. And I know I keep coming back to this, but it's so important that you join me next year when we go through reading the Bible in chronological order. There are so many things that you'll see that you've never seen before. You'll We'll see, for example, how Job fits into the biblical history right after the start of Genesis. You'll see how the time of Judges, which I talked about was such a dark time, how Ruth fits in there and is this wonderful light during that time. You'll see exactly where Jonah fits in and who the kings were that were surrounding his preaching. And you'll see how David's Psalms fit into the various instances in his life and so many, many more things that I think will give you a whole new appreciation for the Bible. It's so important that you do this because we are supposed to understand what's called the whole counsel of God. And to understand really any book in the Bible, you need to see the entire history, how all of them fit together. It's easy to see that God is the ultimate author of the entire Bible when you read the whole thing in proper order. One thing too, we would never read any other book in bits and pieces the way we read the Bible. Any novel, any history, any nonfiction, we would just jump in here and jump in there and then say, oh well I've read the Harry Potter series, well would you read about it? Well I read this chapter here and that chapter there and this chapter, you wouldn't do that. You read it in order and that's what we're going to be doing and when you do that you will really see that we are all part of God's extraordinary plan for us. So go to Bible805.com and there you will find 
reading notes, you'll find the schedule, you'll find all of the different information that you need for going through the Bible in chronological order. Now that's all for our very limited overview of the historical anchors of the Old Testament. Though it has been limited, I really hope that it's given you a little bit of an idea of how God works in true history. Next, we're going to look at the writings that were written between the New Testament and Old Testament, known as the Apocrypha. Until then, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction for you. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.